Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing all right. Uh, just kind of, I don't know, watching the world burn. Apparently. Living. Um, just a, a regular day in 2017. Uh, but we are excited to be back with another episode of Peach Pod. Um, we have a packed show this week. Uh, on this week's show, we're going to talk about Tom Price, longtime Georgia congressman and former now um, head of the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington. On Friday, Tom Price resigned from his position over some reporting by Politico that he took taxpayer-funded private jets to a mix of personal and official business during his time as HHS secretary. Um, so we're going to talk about the really surprising downfall of Tom Price um, as the first cabinet official in the Trump administration to resign, to leave the White House, um, and you know somebody that we've known in Georgia politics for a very long time. Take a look at our neighbors over in Alabama. They nominated a Democrat and a Republican for their general election for United States Senate to replace the sitting attorney general, Jeff Sessions, Roy Moore, a conservative evangelical firebrand, a thorn in the side of Mitch McConnell. He was the winner of the Republican primary last week. He's going to face off against Democrat Doug Jones in a December general election. So we're going to look over at our neighbors over there in Alabama, talk about that race and what it might tell us about some Georgia politics. Um, So with that, we're going to dive right into our first topic this week. So the first topic this week, we're going to talk about Tom Price's resignation from the Department of Health and Human Services. He was a cabinet secretary in the Trump administration, and he came under fire over the last couple weeks from as a result of some reporting by Dan Diamond and Rachana Pradhan at Politico. They detailed Tom Price's use of private jets to ferry him to both public business, his business and his role as secretary, and some personal business. Politico reported that he took 26 flights since since May and that the total cost of these flights combined some military air, aircraft and some personal jets, some private jets. The combined cost of those flights was about a million dollars to taxpayers. Uh, Price tried to redeem himself before he ultimately stepped down. He offered to pay back the price of his seats on those planes. Uh, he was said he would pay about $52,000 back to the federal government for his travel. But this was notable because Price broke from the precedent of previous cabinet officials from the Obama administration in using uh, private jets for his travel and not using commercial airlines in the way that previous HHS secretaries had done. So Luke, we'll just start right there. What did you think when you saw Price's resignation? And were you shocked to see such a quick downfall from somebody who's been active in politics for such a long time in Georgia? You know, I actually wasn't that surprised. And a lot of people I've talked to were, but I just haven't been. And the main reason is because, think about it, if you were Tom Price, you would have wanted to quit the job he was doing. Because, you know, Tom Price has been one of the loudest opponents of Obamacare in the whole country, not just in Georgia, the whole country. And then he gets put in charge of the administration that is supposed to dismantle Obamacare. And instead, he's put in the position that he's supposed to run it. And so, you know, when you have that impossible quagmire in front of you, where this law that you really do not like, and you want to do everything you possibly can do to 
subvert that law, but you are the guy who's in charge of running it. I mean, the cognitive dissonance that he must have experienced on a daily basis was just insurmountable. So you got that problem to begin with. And then on top of that, you have the fact that he's fighting against a bureaucracy that probably mostly likes the law and had spent their careers over the past, you know, seven years of implementing that law. So, you know, it's just not a very easy environment to be in on top of the fact you have uh, a president who's not very interested in the details of the work you're trying to do, but is very interested in the optics of what you're trying to do. So, I mean, I just cannot see a version of reality where Tom Price was enjoying the job that he was doing. And so in that sense, um, he might have welcomed this opportunity to kind of like bow out <laughs> while, while he could, you know? That, that, at least that has been how I saw this play out because this is about the airplane thing, but that is not why he left. You know, like that is, uh, to me, I think that explains the premise of your question, which is how is someone as important as Tom Price has been to the national government sort of rise and fall this quickly? And that's because this scandal would have blown over if anybody else, if it was a different situation. Yeah, I agree. I think I was really surprised that this is what led to his resignation. The the other important thing to note here is that the Republicans did sort of come to the end of their, at least their quest for this year to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And so Tom Price really was going to have to implement this law or at least think of creative ways for him to sabotage it. That is not, that is something that he has been doing um, over the course of the last few weeks, as we're entering open enrollment period for the affordable care act, he's participated in some of the department's decisions to, you know, roll back some of the financial support for enrollment assisters. He's not allowed HHS career staff to participate in some of these state-level enrollment events, the the kinds of sort of nuts and bolts of governing that the Obama administration encouraged both their political and career HHS staff to do to support and enhance the Affordable Care Act. But yeah, Price ultimately is not going to get to implement some other repeal and replacement of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so I could imagine that that is something that was somewhat frustrating to him. And I saw in the reporting that for whatever reason, Trump, who doesn't seem to give a shit about the optics of his own problems, was very concerned about the optics of Tom Price taking private jets. It, there was a disconnect there to me, but because he was so concerned about the optics and sort of did what he's done to other cabinet secretaries and dragged them through the mud in the media, um, he berated Tom Price in the Oval Office for two hours over this, according to some reporting. I don't know how you could yell at him for two hours over this jet thing, but that... Well, that's because it wasn't just about the jet thing. It was about everything, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, Tom Price... And this is one thing I think other people have ignored a lot about Tom Price, and that's been the focus of me when I think about this. Out of everybody in his cabinet, Trump had claimed that he would fire Tom Price more than anybody else. Because at the Boy Scout thing, for example... Who do you say he was going to fire? I'll fire Tom Price if we don't repeal Obamacare. Well, guess what? We didn't repeal Obamacare, and Trump fired Tom Price. You know? So it's just like he seems to be, for whatever reason, really at the heart of the blame for a lot of the failures to repeal Obamacare. And then, again, on the other side of it, to me, this feels like 
Tom Price's dream became his nightmare in that he's HHS secretary, but he has to like implement Obamacare. <laughs> so it's just like, why would he not? Why would he not? Like, why wouldn't you leave if you're Tom Price? Because it's clear that like you're gonna have to be at the heart of like the toughest political manufactured crisis in the country. So I mean, in that in that way, why would you want to be part of it? Yeah, it's almost surreal that to think about the fact that Tom Price is even HHS secretary for President Donald Trump. Um, I, in researching this topic, came across an old open letter that he wrote shortly after Barack Obama was inaugurated in February of 2009, where he discussed basically the playbook that Republicans needed to return to power. And he laid out things that were really pretty bland, but they are interesting to look back on in terms of how this is all played out. I was also struck by the fact that Bobby Jindal is the one that gave the State of the Union response to Obama's first State of the Union. And there was this big focus briefly early in the Obama administration on making the Republicans be this like solutions oriented party. And they were willing, or at least they said that they were willing to be, you know, Jindal claimed that he wanted the Republicans to be the very best partner of Barack Obama when they agreed with the president. And when they disagreed with him, they wanted to lay out better solutions on the table. That was the position of the Republican Party shortly after the 2008 elections. And that is sort of what Tom Price outlines in this old open letter about how to return Republicans to power. Uh, But at the very bottom of this otherwise bland letter, He talks about how Republicans have lost this sort of linguistic battle to the Democrats, that people used to care about responsibility and determination and hard work, and that these ideals have been replaced by fuzzy appeals to diversity, fairness, and social justice. If you read it maybe a year after Price wrote it during that time period, that might seem like a throwaway line. Um, The other point at the end was that he said that the Republican Party has to broaden their appeal to minority groups and embrace the demographics of the country, and that failure to do so will relegate the party to permanent minority status. And so if you think about that letter, and then you tell 2009, Kyle, that in 2017, Tom Price is going to be the uh, the HHS secretary, I would have thought, oh, well, he's probably HHS secretary for somebody like Bobby Jindal, uh, maybe Jeb Bush is in there. Um, but that this case that Price outlines is sort of the way that Republicans clawed themselves back to power. And it turns out that Tom Price is HHS secretary for President Trump, who doesn't give a shit about his own optics, is not the sort of even-handed moral figure that Price is perceived to be at times. Um, it's just, It's just a weird situation that we've ended up in. And then somebody who did the right thing, apologized for the mistake that they made, said they were going to pay back at least part of what they had taken from taxpayers, is the guy that ends up resigning while Donald Trump just sort of ignores the fact that he's ever done anything wrong in his life. It's just a weird place that we're in. I don't know. I guess, I, I guess I'm not as weird out by this because like the first news story that I remember about Tom Price's Health and Human Services Secretary is that, oh, he probably did a bunch of insider trading as a congressman and you know made a lot of money doing that. So it's just like for, for me, everyone's like, oh, Jeff Sessions will be the first, you know, Trump appointee to, you know, get kicked out and some good arguments made about Steve Mnuchin. But like, to me, it's always 
than Price because he's the one that Trump talked about firing the most and he's the one that's had the most negative news stories consistently. I just thought it was interesting that when Price got caught red-handed, he did the right thing in a way that nobody else... Well, it's not the right thing. There's no other solution. He was caught red-handed. That's the only thing you could do. What's the other option? He could say... The other option is he could say, no, this is fake news drummed up by liberals trying to destroy the Trump administration while we're trying to improve Americans' health care. And you know what? I need to use these private jets to get to wherever I need to go for whatever important reason I have. And if yeah. people, I, I don't think any you know, sane person would, would, would like go with that argument. I mean, but what if Trump was HHS secretary, which is a weird thought that, in itself, and he was in this situation? I'm questioning this thought experiment. <laughs> but yeah. Trump has his own jets. This would never happen. He'd fly his own jets. But still, yeah, but I mean, like, hypothetically, in, in some I mean, similar situation, he would not say, oh, I've not. He'd say, who treated. cares? And just like move on. That's 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 what he'd say, because that's how he handles like almost everything. So is it a weird incentive structure that we've created that Price apologized and tried to make it right? Well, no, that's and the problem. Then... That's not why Price got fired. He got fired because he didn't repeal Obamacare. That's why he got fired. This is an excuse to fire him. Yeah. Because, like, you know, again, Steve Mnuchin has done almost the exact same thing, and he's not going anywhere. True. I mean, although they are... And they're being, like, um, mean about it. They're like, yeah, we need these private flights for personal, you know, the, for personal, like, trips paid for by the government. Like, this is this is important, because... Yeah, Mnuchin, Mnuchin tried to request a government jet to pay for his honeymoon trip. Right. I don't know what the rationale was. He ended up withdrawing the request. I think it got reported out in the media and um, was embarrassing to him. But I don't know. (laughs) I just like it is just strange to me that Tom Price. I mean, I have a lot of reasons. I think there are a lot of other reasons that if I was president, I would have fired Tom Price. Um, His performance in his job, whether or not. On, on things that I both agree with and disagree with, his performance has been terrible. It was reported sort of at the bottom of all of this reporting about the planes was that Tom Price was nowhere to be found during the final ACA push, ACA repeal push. He wasn't on the Hill, you know, trying to convince holdout senators. He wasn't sitting there with Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski and trying to educate them on why this proposal the White House supported was so great, which I don't really know why he wasn't there and i wouldn't have i mean i repeal is not an outcome that i would have wanted but if you want him to be doing legislative work for you he clearly wasn't doing that yeah well Uh, i mean i think that's the point (laughs) the point is that's why they fired him is because he was not doing a good job well tom price we hardly knew you but uh i wonder if he got one last taxpayer funded flight back to georgia um well i'm sure politico will find out yeah, I'm sure they will. They found out uh, everybody else's travel schedules too. Um, there are other, there are two other officials from the Trump administration that are under investigation for their travel. So, so we'll see if this is a one-off thing or if, if it's a thing for the whole, the whole cabinet. Um, so, for our last topic, we're going to look over to our neighbors in Alabama and discuss the results, uh, particularly of the Republican primary for the United, one of the United States Senate seats for Alabama. This is to replace Jeff Sessions, who is the attorney general. He was pulled out of his seat uh, to join the Trump administration. And then the now former governor, now disgraced governor, 
Robert Bentley appointed Luther Strange, the sitting appointed United States Senator uh, of Alabama, and he faced off against former Alabama Supreme Court Justice Roy Moore, um, the judge known as Judge Ten Commandments. He faced off against Moore in a Republican primary, and Moore, this conservative evangelical firebrand, ended up throwing up a big big middle finger to the Trump administration, to establishment Republicans, and defeated Luther Strange by about 44,000 votes. He took about 55% of the vote to Luther Strange's 45 in a runoff from a Republican primary that was held earlier this year. Roy Moore is going to go on to face Doug Jones, a Democrat who is a former U.S. attorney. He's most no, most well known for his prosecution of a few former members of the KKK who set off a bombing in a church in downtown Birmingham in the early 1960s during the civil rights movement. Let's start out with Roy Moore, Luke. Roy is somebody who is really outside of even the fringes of American politics that have now sort of come into the mainstream Republican Party. This guy has a very different view of the law, a very different view of Christian tradition and how it influences the law. Just talk a little bit about what you think of Roy Moore and what kind of United States Senator Alabama might be sending uh, to Washington in December. When I think about people like Roy Moore, what my first question in my mind is, is this like the first of what's to come or is this sort of the last gasp of what we've been seeing? And right now I don't have the answer to that question and that I find pretty terrifying because in a lot of ways there's a good argument that Trump and Roy Moore and folks like this who are a bit more on this, the fringes of American politics on the right are the last gasp of what we've been seeing over the past, well, I mean, basically since 1964. Um, But since we've been getting more and more extreme and we've seen a lot of people go in that direction, it makes me concerned that this could be the new normal in that in this environment that we are currently in where people are bombarded with information, there's a million news sources that you can get your news from and you can really isolate yourself that it's really hard to break through the noise. And because of that, people like Roy Moore break through the noise quite successfully. And, you know, that makes me concerned about where that's going to lead American politics. And, you know, there's definitely some politicians in Georgia that I would put more in the Roy Moore camp. I don't think there's anyone uh, who's proven themselves to be as extreme as him yet there's definitely the possibility that they could start going down that route. Let's talk a little bit about what makes Roy Moore so extreme. So Roy Moore was a judge on the Alabama Supreme Court, um, and he is somebody who believes that the Constitution and the legal authority of the Constitution is derived from Christianity and, and the law of God. And so he believes that God's law is always superior to any law that man can come up with and that if at any time you know humans pass a law that is an affront to God's law that it is something that should not be 
respected and it you know it's an illegitimate law because it is because God's law has supremacy over any sort of legislative action from from people and therefore that is his sort of underlying reason for for two instances where he actually he got kicked off the Alabama Supreme Court twice uh, once he refused to remove a statue of the Ten Commandments a monument to it that he had in he had had installed outside the Alabama Supreme Court um, it was challenged and it was found that it wasn't appropriate legally for him to have a monument to the Ten Commandments out in front of the court and he refused to remove it and so he was removed from the state Supreme Court um, after two failed attempts to run for governor of Alabama. He actually won back his old seat on the state Supreme court in 2012. And then when the 2015 Supreme court decision that legalized same sex marriage across the United States went into effect, he tried to argue that uh, justices and government officials in Alabama should not respect that ruling from the court and should uphold uh, basically making same-sex marriages illegal because they were an affront to God's law. He argues these points because he's connected to a religious and theocratic belief system known as dominionism. And this is a belief that America has always been a Christian nation and that is, it is the duty of Christian public officials to return Christianity to its former place of influence in American legal tradition and in American politics and American governance. Um, it is a view of the law that is well outside even the most evangelical sort of standard Christian views of the law or standard Christian views of how religious tolerance and, and having the state not impose a religion on its people um, should allow Christians to just be able to freely exercise their beliefs without government interference Roy Moore turns that foundation on its head and believes that, you know, the entire legal foundation of this country is based on Christian law and therefore anything short of, you know, return to Christian prominence in American law is something that's not acceptable to him. Um, Luke, what do you think of that view of the law? I mean, you're, you're in law school right now. You're, I'm sure you think a lot about legal foundations and legal principles. I mean, what, you know, what do you think of what Moore believes here? Uh, I would say I am not a legal expert, <laughs> but but more 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 importantly about Moore, um, yeah, this this does not ring right with me. I, I I would I would like talk about my history degree more than my my current legal education, limited as it is. Um, yeah, it it just just seems pretty wacko, pretty bizarro to me. Um, where he's coming from on this and. I think it's it's bizarre to me because it's so counter to what I've always understood the American system of government and laws to be, which is sort of advocating the opposite of what he's saying, because so much of the government was founded on the idea of preventing this kind of thing from happening and preventing religion to take too prominent of a role in the government. Um, so I, I'm just kind of not on board. I am not on board for <laughs> Roy Moore's, uh, vision of America, uh, as this theocratic nation, um, which I, I, you know, I don't know how many other Republicans really are either. And so, I mean, I just can't even imagine what 
he's going to do if he wins this seat and what kind of senator he'll be um, based on his record. I imagine he's probably going to get into some kind of trouble. (laughs) The easiest comparison to me is Ted Cruz, but Ted Cruz doesn't seem to espouse this view of Christianity and, and how it should impact American legal tradition. You know, what conservative Christian evangelical Republicans have wanted is basically to kind of carve themselves out of American law in recent years. This is sort of what the whole RIFRA debate on the state level is about. It is sort of just like accepting, sort of surrendering to the idea that the Supreme Court has legalized same-sex marriage and and there's a lot of other things that are objectionable to evangelical Christians that are, are legal in the United States, like abortion and that Christians basically just want a license to sort of stay out of that, it seems like now. And for more, this idea opens up a whole other way of interpreting the Constitution. He's argued that Keith Ellison, a congressman from Minnesota, he argued in 2006 when Ellison won his first election that Ellison should not be allowed to be seated as a member of Congress because he's a Muslim. And he said that because the Constitution is founded on specifically Christian principles, anybody whose beliefs fall outside of those principles, by definition, falls outside of the Constitution and therefore shouldn't be able to serve in our constitutional government. I mean, it just opens up a whole can of worms that I don't think is acceptable on either side of the aisle in in mainstream politics. And it is something that Republicans have backed away from. Moore was not the candidate that establishment Republicans wanted. This is seen as a big blow to Mitch McConnell and the establishment Republicans who supported Luther Strange in this race. Um, And it's even to some extent seen as a blow against Donald Trump because he followed the establishment Republicans on this one and, and supported Strange, despite the fact that the kind of person who supported Donald Trump in November really does seem to be the kind of person who wants to see Roy Moore become a United States senator. Yeah, I mean, I found that very telling as well, that even Donald Trump was, like, not willing to endorse him. In that sense, maybe maybe there's, you know, some kind of thought about um, who is the more viable candidate, and that turning out to not be true. Um, but, yeah, I found it pretty interesting that Trump got invested in this race and then sort of didn't really do a whole lot for Luther Strange. Big Luther Strange, as they refer to him in Alabama. So I think to kind of to kind of wrap on this point, I think there's two ways to think about the support that Roy Moore has. Um, there are, I'm sure, devout evangelical Christians who believe Roy Moore's vision of a Christian theocratic government and how Moore and Ted Cruz and other senators should return the United States to that kind of governing tradition, uh, one that I don't think has ever really existed, but one that I think they think should exist. The other way to look at some of the folks who supported Roy Moore, and these are the people who probably are the kinds of people who would have supported Donald Trump last year, is is a quote given by Thomas Massey. He's a Republican uh, member of the House of Representatives from Kentucky, He's a libertarian, a lot like Rand Paul, his fellow Kentuckian and, and member of the U.S. Senate. I mean, he said he was sort of thinking back through why a few libertarian politicians had been able to do well 
despite the fact that you know we don't have this emerging consensus around libertarian ideas of governance in this country. But he said um, a quote that was pretty telling to me. He said, you know, all this time I thought they were voting for libertarian Republicans. But after some soul searching, I realized that when they voted for Rand Paul and Ron Paul and, and Massey talking about himself in some of these primaries, they weren't voting for libertarian ideas. They were voting for the craziest son of a bitch in the race. And Donald Trump won best in class, as we all had up until Trump came along. Is this where the Republican Party is at now? That seems to be the only line you can draw between some of the candidates that have been successful and why Roy Moore would be remotely acceptable is that for some reason Republicans just want to send people who want to, you know, screw some stuff up in Washington to Washington. Is that is that resonate with you, Luke? I think it does. I, I, I briefly, just for the sake of thoroughness, and I, and I do sincerely think this was part of the issue with this race, I want to point out the fact that um, Luther Strange was the attorney general of Alabama, and he was the primary person who was uh, investigating former Governor Bentley before he was appointed and so there is there is a good amount of people that were concerned about a corrupt bargain between the two of them and that's you know in somehow shape or form the investigation was slowed down due to that appointment and that there was some deal made obviously ultimately did not save governor bentley but there was definitely whispers of that in alabama so you know that's that is an argument for more winging as well the other argument you know more was pretty well known where it's debatable how well known big Luther strange was. Um, but that being said, I think that kind of goes back to where we started the conversation with, is this the end of a trend or the beginning of a trend? Um, so I think, I think we don't have enough data points yet. I think we're going to have to see a couple more elections to see if, that is truly where the Republicans are going. Um, I think we'll see that in the primary cycle that we have. Um, and we definitely saw that in 2010 and 2014. There's a lot of examples of pretty radical candidates being chosen. I really don't know. I don't know what where we are with it. And it, it's concerning to me because <laughs> the whole point we started this show is, you know, trying to have like more rational, thorough conversations about policy and be thoughtful individuals, um, but that does not seem to be what a sizable amount of the electorate wants, and they actually want the polar opposite. They want people who don't put a lot of thought into their positions and that they basically have incredibly strong convictions that will lead them to make very, very loud positions. And, and one thing I, I would want to say, too, is that it's not just isolated to the right. You know, there's definitely some voices on the left that are like that as well. It's just manifests itself entirely differently. So it's a, you know, it's a problem of polarization on both sides that comes out in different ways, but is still there. And so my concern is as we are ramping up to the, you know, Georgia midterms that we have, a couple candidates in uh, the Republican primary who, while not as radical as Roy Moore, Moore are definitely leaning in that direction more than previous years. Um, and so I'm going to be watching those primaries very, very closely to see what happens and see 
if uh, if that does happen. Because, you know, just to point out one Georgia example, you know, we have the Georgia 6 election. Bringing it back can never leave, can never leave J6. But, um, you know, in that race, there was some clear Trumpian, clear Roy Moore-esque candidates in that race, and they did not do that well. You know, Karen Handel was the front runner on the Republican side by fair margin and the you know, the couple people who were behind her were pretty reasonable, with one exception, to my recollection. So I think it might be really bad in some places, but in other places it'll be a little less uh, concerning. But we'll have to see. Yeah, I actually think, um, you know, now that Tom Price is no longer HHS secretary, I think the Georgia Constitution requires that Karen Handel become HHS secretary and that John Ossoff have to spend another $30 million to try to win that congressional seat. Please God, no. Um, Yeah, I mean, it is going to be interesting to see how this develops. I mean, you also have in the upcoming governor's race, you have a candidate in Michael Williams who wants to be the Trump candidate. He wants to be the outsider who is critical of the political establishment. He's he's tried to tag this name campaign Casey onto who everyone believes is the front runner, the current lieutenant governor, Casey Cagle. Um, and he's trying to run the Trump playbook. And I'm not sure, I mean, at least in the, in the political community that's been watching so far, I, I think most of us have kind of been mildly amused and mildly confused about the Williams campaign strategy. In our last episode, we talked about his plan to have a protest at a Cherokee County school over the fact that a teacher required some students wearing Make America Great Again t-shirts to turn them inside out uh, because she said that it was a you know discriminatory slogan and, and something that wasn't uh, shouldn't be on display in a classroom. He did end up having that protest. He had, from the video I saw, it looked like maybe 20 or 30 people were there, and there were a lot of Trump flags and and T-shirts what, and things like that. What is a Trump and flag? It was just a flag with his name oh, on it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I think, like, the American flag. I think it was his campaign, you know, like that, that banner he used to have in front of his podium yes. every time he'd make a speech. I think it was a flag. Oh, okay. It said, Make America Great Again. Great. Um but yeah, I mean, Williams is trying to be that candidate, and well, I'm gonna I'm gonna, gonna throw in a little caveat to the person that you're pointing out the most because I think the person that actually fits this profile more is Josh McCoon, right, for Secretary of State, and the reason why I say is there's uh, a there's one factor that the three folks we've been talking about Trump, Roy Moore, and Josh McCoon all have in common that Michael Williams does not which is they all three prior to running established a brand of firebrand politics and were decently well-known across the state. Because I don't know about you, but in my reading of the AJC and other you know Georgia-related blogs, Josh McCoon comes up a lot. <laughs> like, pretty much everybody knows who he is if you actually follow politics. Um, and that being said, you know he's a firebrand, you know he's really conservative. So I think he's going to be the most interesting person to watch because there are candidates that would be more traditionally suited to the job of secretary of state and are thoughtful about it. Even if we disagree on policy, um, and Josh McCoon is probably not that. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see if he will be able to, you know, supersede them in that race. 
under those circumstances since he's already kind of established his brand in the way that Roy Moore and Donald Trump had prior to running. Well, and you know, the thing I think that also helps out McCoon that is not helpful to Williams is that Trump's campaign and Roy Moore's campaign are probably pretty disconnected from the actual job that they're running for. I mean, everybody who supported Trump thought he'd be a great president, but he wasn't arguing his ability to do the job when he's you know, making the case to his voters that his voters love. Roy Moore is arguing the case that he wants to return a theocratic Christian worldview to American legal tradition, and that's something that he's not going to be able to do as one member of the United States Senate. And Josh McCoon can make the Secretary of State's race about whatever he wants it to be, uh, because I don't think that very many voters know or have strong feelings about what the Secretary of State actually does. McCoon is interesting in, in the same way that Trump came to prominence among his base by being very critical of illegal immigration and you know and saying very very despicable things about basically anyone who isn't white. Uh, McCoon made his name by criticizing the state's practice of giving undocumented immigrants driver's licenses. And he's alleging and has alleged in the past that these driver's licenses allow undocumented immigrants to vote. And he's had similar kinds of political events where he'll talk about crimes committed by undocumented immigrants. And I don't know if he can be successful in weaving all these themes into a secretary of state's campaign. But if he's doing that and other candidates like Buzz Brockaway or RJ Hadley or um, John Barrow now or, or John Barrow now. Yeah. Who's announced are just trying to one run kind of a regular, this is what I'm going to do as secretary of state. And these are my ideas for replacing the voting machines and all that. And he's sitting there saying, I'm going to do everything in my power as Secretary of State to stop illegal immigration, even though he has virtually no authority over that issue. Business licensing, just play devil's advocate. You know, that is, I think is an advantage to him, whereas Williams, if he eventually becomes a top-tier candidate in this race, really will at some point have to lay out an entire vision of how he'd run the entire state. You know, Republicans, his Republican opponents in the primary are going to be able to pin him in ways that... uh, you know, McCoon may not have to face. Well, I, I would counter that by saying that that's what everyone said about Trump too. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And, and also um, I think it bears to say that Brian Kemp has also taken a somewhat like Trump light approach in some ways, definitely not to the level of Michael Williams has, but in some ways Brian Kemp has kind of taken that banger as well. And it'll be interesting to see if, because to me, Kemp's campaign has been kind of quiet. I mean, he's doing events. He's, He's out there, but this is really a race. It feels like Casey Cagle's race to win on the Republican side um, and that Michael Williams in his antics feel a little bit like a sideshow in the way that Trump's did initially, um, but that the ultimate person carrying this sort of strong on borders, strong on uh, crimes committed by undocumented immigrants, Kemp may be the one that that carries that message against Kegel in the end. Yeah. But it's going to be interesting to see. Just to, t- to tie up the end of the Alabama Senate race, do you think that Doug Jones has any shot in this race? At this point, I'm, I'm no longer in the predictions game. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I think that's not really the question that needs to be asked. I think the 
uh, question that needs to be asked is how can we make the most effective argument against Roy Moore and the politics that he represents? Because even if we're not going to be able to beat him this cycle, and you know Roy Moore is a pretty old dude, so he's not going to be around forever. But like we need to make a start making the argument against politicians like this, and, and especially in places like Alabama, because unfortunately, you know, uh, ideas spread the same way as viruses. Uh, and so, you know, when you have an ideology that is as dangerous as Roy Moore's is, you need to start fighting against it, even if it's unlikely that you'll be successful every time you go out there. Um, you know, I think with the resume that he has, it's a compelling resume for, you know, the folks in Alabama. And, you know, it's a real question if he can just get the funding and get his message out there. I mean, you know, I'm not going to pretend that Alabama's not a really tough state for any Democrat to run in, but that's not an excuse to let them get a free pass on Roy Moore, of all people. So, um, and stranger things have happened. I mean, they really have. And, you know, the race has got two more months, so Roy Moore could say something that's just incredibly disqualifying. And while Trump was able to get away with that, it seems like other candidates have not as much. So we very well might see Roy Moore go down and it be like a really, really surprising thing. Um, but, you know, we might not. So, but we got to be there and be ready for it if it does happen. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, so we will leave that one there. And we will also leave this episode there. So we will talk to you guys next it's week. good to be back, guys. that's our show for the week if you like what you heard share the show with a friend and go over to itunes and give us a rating or a review it really helps other people find our show we'll be back with another episode of peach pod next week until then take care y'all